HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's show is brought to you by Bob's Red Mill, sharing nothing but the best in whole grain nutrition and committed to their mission of good food for all. Learn more at bobsredmill.com slash podcast. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. All right. This is What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer, and this is the Heritage Radio Network. Um, we have a lot of stuff to cover today. I had a really great, I have a great guest lined up. His name is uh, David R. Montgomery, wrote a wonderful book about soil. And w- before you roll your eyes, <laughs> let me promise you that this is actually quite riveting. I mean, I read it in two sittings. I enjoyed every page of it. He's an excellent writer. But that's for a few minutes later in the program, because right now we have joys and sorrows to report. So um, one of the things that caught my attention, uh, in fact, today, um, was that, um, well, most of us will smugly shrug our shoulders at the news that uh, 382,000 pounds of frozen processed foods have been recalled due to listeria or listeria concerns. Um, You know, we can smugly say that we don't eat frozen foods, um, and I certainly don't, and probably many of you listeners don't either, although some of you might. And isn't it great that those frozen food entrees were identified as potentially hazardous to our health? That speaks to a pretty robust food safety system. But what absolutely breaks my heart is that, on the other hand, it is appalling that that much food was contaminated, and even more appalling that that much food is consigned to landfill unfit for human consumption. 382,000 pounds of food just got trashed. I mean, that kills me. I don't know about you, but I, you know, you want to talk about food waste, that freaking kills me. Okay, so who saw the big story about imported organic soybeans and corn, but in this case, soybeans being anything but organic? Um, The Washington Post broke a story last week about a shipment of 36 million pounds of soybeans from Turkey, from whence we derive a great deal of our quote-unquote organic foodstuffs, um, which somehow acquired along the way the coveted USDA organic label. Um, Just in case you were wondering, that label change also supplied a very nice uptick in profit of some $4 million to whoever made that switch. Um, And have I mentioned 
that food fraud is a $43 billion and counting business in the worldwide. Um, and that's just the stuff we know about, folks. You can read all about it in my book. What's the matter with meat? There will be a quiz. Um, I do have an entire chapter on food fraud, which is an, a burgeoning business uh, that is controlled by many, many, many different players, including uh, organized crime, drug cartels, as well as just your everyday average middleman who feels like putting a USDA organic label on something that comes through his warehouse. Um, also, if you want to hear uh, me talk about what's the matter with meat, which I hope you will, you should head on over to Eating Matters with the wonderful Jenna Liute, who asked me many meat questions on her episode 87 last week on Sunday. Um, that's some joy for you to enjoy. Uh, I thought I, I thought it was really great. <laughs> of course. Because <laughs> I just love to hear myself talk. I promise you that. Um, and finally, uh, my last item here is... Um, really something that is a foretaste of what is to come in terms of our uh, agricultural business uh, in this country. Um, I don't know if you guys have been following the story about the uh, public nuisance lawsuit, which was uh, levied against a subsidiary of of Smithfield in North Carolina. Um, about, I don't know how long ago, uh, a group of, of people... Uh, some 500 people plus a few organizations got together to bring a suit against um, the subsidiary of Smithfield called, believe it or not, Murphy Brown, um, about the smell that emanates from the many, many, many hog facilities in that area. Um, I don't know if you know this, but you probably do. North Carolina is kind of ground zero besides Iowa of hog country in this in this in the United States. So the Republican legislature has overridden the Democratic governor's veto. I know this is complicated of a law that would have protected hog farms from nuisance lawsuits. In other words, the governor said yes, said said no to um getting rid of the laws, the nuisance laws that would have protected the residents. He said, we must have the law that will protect our residents. But the legislature has overridden him. North Carolina has more pigs than people. I think the ratio was something like 40 to 1. And the CAFOs, if you've ever driven past a hog farm, I think you know what I'm talking about. They present a perfectly like stomach-churning smell for anyone who lives downwind or in close proximity. And usually those CAFOs, by the way, are built in areas of low income um, because low-income people are less likely to sue. You wouldn't be putting this, say, in the backyard of Wyzetta, Minnesota, or uh, I don't know, um, you know, Westchester County. That ain't going to happen because these people have money and they're going to sue and they're going to win. Um, but those those smells are not just foul. They actually represent health hazards because the gases that that emanate from these uh, lagoons of manure uh, are are things like ammonia and hydrogen sulfide. Those are the ones you smell primarily. There's also methane um, and a number of other VOCs and uh, greenhouse gases that are you know contributing to climate change. That goes without saying. Um, now, they could actually do something about this, these companies. Um, the farmers themselves who own the hog facilities, probably not so much because it costs a lot of money to use the tech to, to implement the technology that is available to uh, mitigate some of those smells. But the companies should be required to assist farmers who are raising hogs for them under contract 
uh, with ways to mitigate them. That includes either uh, adopting something called an anaerobic digester, which Cargill, for example, has out at their Fort Collins plant. Um, it's a covered pit. It uh, traps all of that methane. It traps all of those VOCs. It traps the smells. And then they have anaerobic bacteria in there. They eat all of the pollutants and, um, and create methane, which is then uh, turned back into electricity for their grid. So that's one option. There are also air scrubbers. There are air filters. There are tree breaks. Uh, there are masking agents. Uh, there's a whole, uh, really an enormous uh, panoply, maybe not enormous, but there is a significant panoply of uh, mitigation schemes that could be deployed in the service of protecting uh, the local population from the smell and from the health hazards. And the health hazards, by the way, include things like um, migraine headaches, depression and anxiety, yes, uh, lung disease, um, all kinds of respiratory issues, all kinds of problems with being able to smell, period, like being affected by that. I mean, it's really, you can read all about this. Yes, you can read about it in my book because I have a whole chapter about this stuff because that's what I do. I write about the meat industry. So um, so get your copy of What's the Matter with Meat. Um, anyway, I, I highly recommend um, looking up this lawsuit because this could come to a, a, you know, if you live out in farm country, this could come to a farm near you and you really want to figure out what your options are for protection. So um, that's it for the joys and sorrows of this week. We're going to take a quick sponsor drop. We'll be right back with my guest, the excellent David R. Montgomery, uh, who has written an absolutely brilliant book called Growing a Revolution, Bringing Our Soil Back to Life. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Bob's Red Mill has been milling whole grains since 1978. When you mill whole grains, you get all three parts of the seed, the bran, the germ, and the endosperm. The endosperm is the main energy storage unit of the seed. That's where the growing plant gets its energy before it can start photosynthesizing and making its own. It makes up a huge portion of the grain, about 83%, and it's the main source that's used for white flour. When you make white flour, you get rid of the germ and the bran and just have the white endosperm left. It contains almost all the carbohydrates. It also contains protein and iron and some of the other B vitamins as well. It's kind of what you classically think of when you're thinking of flour. So all that's there when you're milling with whole grains. But when you mill with whole grains, you also get the bran, which is the kind of roughage and gives that, that's what gives that, that kind of color to it. Also gives you extra fiber that uh, helps you to be regular. And you also get the germ, which adds the fat and the flavor, which we all like from whole grains. Learn more at bobsredmill.com slash podcast. This is What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights. I am your host, Katie Kiefer, and we are the Heritage Radio Network. And today we're going to be talking with the excellent, wonderful, incredible David R. Montgomery, a professor of geomorphology at the University of Washington. He is the author of Dirt, The Erosion of Civilizations, as well as The Hidden Half of Nature, which he wrote with his wife, Anne B. Clay. And the book we are talking about today, Growing a Revolution, Bringing Our Soil Back to Life. Welcome to the show, David. Thanks a lot for joining joining me today. Hey, well, thanks, Katie. It's a pleasure to be here talking to you. I really loved your book. I mean, I, you know, I was like surprised. It's, it's a total page turner. It's really fun. Well done. Congratulations. <laughs> hey, well, I can't, 
thank you. I can't help but love hearing that. <laughs> <laughs> well, of course, absolutely. Um, <laughs> who wouldn't? When you write a book, you want people to read it and enjoy it. Um, it's, yeah. not, it's not just about learning stuff, which I, I learned a great deal, I must say. Um, but uh, let's, because I know you're a bit pressed for time, let's start by, you talk about something called the four revolutions, um, and then you also diss the plow. I mean, like, isn't that, um, you know, apostasy? <laughs> you're not allowed to say the plow is bad. <laughs> <laughs> right. I mean, after all, it's on the seal of the USDA. Indeed. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, the, I'm, a, a, I'm a geologist by training, and so yep. a, a bit of a student of history. Uh, and if you look back through human history and our relationship to agriculture, we've really gone through four major, in my accounting, four mm-hmm. major agricultural revolutions. And I think we need a fifth one, which is partly why I wrote the book. But. Yeah. And if you look at them, it's the initial idea of cultivation. That was a radical idea, and using, introducing the plow goes way back in agricultural history, as does agri- animal labor. And so to me, that's kind of like with the first big agricultural revolution. Yeah. The second one was thinking about soil husbandry and you know, rotating crops, uh, planting legumes, using manure to try and sustain the fertility of the land that that first revolution was starting to wear down. Um, and yeah, that developed in different societies around the world at different times. Uh, then in the 19th and early 20th century, the whole development of mechanization and, and industrialization of agriculture that brought a heavy reliance on fertilizers and cheap fossil fuels kind of undid a lot of the stuff that was advanced in that second revolution, replaced right. it with another one. And then in the latter tw- part of the 20th century, the whole uh, development of, uh, uh, well, the whole green revolution and biotechnology revolution, together with mechanization and industrialization, formed the foundation of what we now call conventional agriculture. Um, right. And why would I diss the plow? You know, <laughs> it's, that, it's an icon of agriculture. But it is. if you... If you look at, uh, you know, when was the last time you went out to a natural landscape, a native grassland or a, na- or a forest, and saw a whole bunch of bare, turned-up earth? Yeah. And I actually see that a lot. I see that in my home state of Rhode Island, where we have a lot of agriculture, and I spend a good deal of time there, and we grow a lot of sweet corn for people. And mm. they definitely still do uh, tilling. They still till the soil with a plow. I see bare dirt there a lot. Yeah, most most agriculture in the U.S. is uh, tillage based. There's been mm-hmm. the, the no-till techniques have been growing, but if you look at the way that nature builds soils, there's not. Uh, she clothes herself in plants. There's not a lot of bare ground for a very simple reason: bare ground erodes faster than soil forms. Mm. And so, one of the the big problem historically with, with the plow has been that it has allowed soil to quite literally be stripped off the landscape. If you look at Libya and Syria today, for example, uh, two of the world's perennial trouble spots. Yeah, their troubles are rooted back in the loss of their soil. You know, many centuries ago, um, through farming practices that stripped their fertile topsoil off the land. You can find Roman tax records that show that those areas were actually very productive wheat-producing terrain wow. in, in in the geologically not-too-distant past. But for human history, nobody remembers this. <laughs> yeah. Oh, well, I mean, we have historically short memories <laughs> if we bother oh, yeah. to learn history at all, right? I mean, you yeah. talked a lot about the, the um, and I didn't ask this in my, in my outline, I know, but I wanted you to talk a little bit about the sort of micro-rise, tell me how to say that, 
Mike- oh, mycorrhizae, the mycorrhizal fungi. Yeah, like what is going? I mean, what is going on in soil? Because you describe this very complex web of interactions, which I found absolutely fascinating and completely, um, you know, eye-opening in terms of like, well, of course that's the way it's supposed to be, and why would we ever do anything but foster that? So I wanted you to take us through that a little bit. Well, sure. I mean, the, the, we could start with the very earliest land plants. Yeah. Um, one of the things that was an eye-opener for me in researching this book was learning that when uh, plants first started colonizing um, the continents uh, that came out of the, out of the sea, uh, they, the roots were simply there for structural support. What actually nourished plants was the, the fungi, the mycorrhizal fungi, in the soil. And fungi tend to break down organic matter. They recy- they're nature's recycle- recyclers. They take dead mm-hmm. things and consume them and then excrete the remains. And, and in doing that, they've basically turned organic matter into the building blocks for new life. And mm-hmm. very early on in the history of life on the continents, fungi partnered with plants, and so the plants, through their ability to photosynthesize, they can turn sunlight into sugars. They can, they can print money for the biological world, or for the underground economy, if you really like puns. <laughs> I do. Um, and, you know, those plants will then trade those sugars to fungi, who then have the ability to break down rocks and to break down and recycle once living matter, organic wow. matter. And so they trade, and they both benefit. It's a symbiosis. Right. And those kinds of symbioses are really deep in the evolution of, of plants on land. So when you look at, at many plants today, now that we have a much greater, greater diversity of plants and, and, and various crops that we depend on, those plants form partnerships with mycorrhizal, mycorrhizal fungi in the soil, and it helps provide them with the nutrients they need to grow, and it provides them especially with the micronutrients they need to be healthy. And we right. can, when we think of growing a crop, we can either think of growing it big or growing it healthy. Um, and ideally, you'd want to do both, right? But um, we've tended to think of just growing big crops when we think of yields. Right. And we've lost sight of, of the importance of the fungi in growing healthy crops. And so one of the downsides of the plow is the way that the fungi um, uh, hook up with the plants are through these little um, root-like features known as hyphae that go out into the soil and connect with the mineral particles and then connect back to the plants, a plow chops that system up. And so you're basically, every time you plow a field, you're basically disrupting nature's delivery service for the nutrients that are held in the soil particles to the crops themselves. Incredible. It's a, it's, that's really... And, you know, I feel like I've seen those little white, whitish... Um, Rooty things when I turn yep. over soil when I plant stuff. Am oh yeah, I, if you go, go out them? and dig in the garden or dig yeah. in the forest, and you'll see them. It's like thread-like, almost spiderweb-like things. They yeah. can be very thin. They can go literally. Some of them can go for miles. The ones that are associated with trees, yeah. um, but they're a critical part of that of nature's system of 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 nourishing plants that then protect the soil from erosion, and then when they die, provide food to feed the microbes that in turn help nourish the plants. It's this great engine of life that um, we're starting to see how we might need to apply those kinds of principles and thinking to growing our own food, to agriculture. Well, I think it's long overdue that we start applying those principles. Like, <laughs> let me... <laughs> 
Yeah, I agree totally. <laughs> I mean, you know, your book makes that abundantly clear. And not only that, we're exporting our horrible methods all around the world with the Green Revolution and everything else. But I want to I want to just dial back sort of like the, you know, the mycorrhizal um, fungi tendencies of this conversation <laughs> and, <Yeah. laughs> and, and get back to some of the more common myths about agricultural practices, because what brought us to this place where we, in my opinion, and I'm sure you would agree, I mean, I think, aren't we, aren't we uh, risking a sort of similar dust bowl uh, phenomenon in this country as we as climate change uh, advances, as temperatures heat up, as we continue to till soil, as we have been, and break up these these essential things. Um, what so what, what? Why is it that that agriculture is perpetuating this instead of uh, actually studying soil chemistry and understanding these basic principles? Well, what we really need to do is study soil biology and soil ecology to understand the principles. Mm. Because one of the reasons that um, sort of agrochemical intensive agriculture uh, was so successful in the 20th century is that we had already degraded soil fertility right. through, through centuries of plow-based agriculture that disrupted those mycorrhizal fungi and that also helped burn up the organic matter that was in the soil. Because every time you plow, you're exposing that organic matter to oxidation and it can be degraded faster than it would have normally. Um, so there's, there's a bunch of... Uh, connections there. And I think you were asking about... Uh, well, about I was asking myth. about common myths in agriculture, yeah. like the myth of, of we must till, we must turn the soil <laughs> over in order to, you know, make it profitable or make it... I don't know. I mean, why did they even start doing that? What was the purpose of plowing land in these vast swaths as we do now? I mean, I can we sort know, of understand breaking up the soil when you're, you know, a homesteader in 1865. But like now, why, why are we doing that still? Yeah, well, there's the whole initial seedbed preparation thing and originally breaking the soil. But there's, but tillage plowing is really good weed control. Ah. And so you go back through history, and that's one of, the, one of the big reasons that farmers have relied on it, is that when you plant something, you want your crop to grow up before the weeds do. Yeah. And so if you basically go in there and create a blank slate, plant your seeds, um, that's what's going to come up first. So essentially what we've done is we've sort of preempted the weed cycle by making our crops sort of managed weeds, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, and so tillage was very useful in that regard, but it turns out that there's other methods of very effective weed control that one can practice. You know, one of obviously is herbicides, but and it turns out that others include things like growing cover crops intentionally that right. would cover the ground and outcompete the weeds and using ecological principles to defeat the, the pest that, that farmers consider weeds to be by planting things that you want there that will enrich the nutrient cycling in the soil and help build its fertility, in which case, you know, was it a, you know, is it a weed or is it a cover crop? becomes kind of a, a gray zone question depending on what you're planting. Um, but there's, you know, other big myths about agriculture today include the idea that, you know, industrialized agrochemical agriculture is feeding the world. You know, most of the world does not eat from small farms um, or that industrialized agriculture is more efficient than small farms or other so-called alternative techniques. And mm-hmm. depending on how you look at it, um, one can define efficiency differently, but um, alternative practices tend to use fewer inputs uh, things like diesel, fertilizer, pesticides, per unit of food that's grown. And it's only on um, looking at the production of a single crop 
that large-scale industrial agriculture looks more productive, and that's usually how it's reported, you know, yield of, say, corn or soybeans sure. in, in a particular area. But if you look at the yield of food, all crops off of a piece of land, small, diverse farms outproduce out very large industrialized monocultures. So if you think about the problem of how we're going to feed more people in 100 years, the answer may not be really big farms. It may be more small farms. Um, well, I, I would not disagree with you there, but I, there's a whole uh, economic um, jigsaw puzzle that is reliant on uh, producing huge amounts of you know, corn, soy, wheat, rice, cotton, uh, sugar beets, you know, stuff like that, that kind of, you know, grinds through the entire world global, um, I don't even know what to call it, the global economy. I mean, it's, it's those, those crops are making big money for somebody, um, even though they yeah. are not feeding anyone, really. I mean, they're inputs into livestock feed or biofuels or something like that, or high fructose yeah. corn syrup, you know, but they're not really food crops. Yeah, no, one of the myths you run into about North American agriculture is that we need our current system of production to feed the world. Yeah, right. But it's not used for doing that today. No, <laughs> just it's as not. You're, just as you're pointing out. Yeah. Um, and one of the things that really um, uh, I, I focused on in the book, because it was such an eye-opener to me, was the, um, the, re- the realization that a suite of alternative practices that are together sort of known under the umbrella of conservation agriculture, mm-hmm. um, which involves going no-till or ditching the plow, using cover crops to cover up the ground surface and prevent erosion and, and build organic matter, and then growing a more diverse suite of crops right. in a field. You know, those adopting all three methods can actually be more profitable for farmers today than what we use as conventional agriculture. And, and how does that work, and how does that square with the, the sort of whole broader image of the food system? Well, think about what's happened since the Second World War in our agricultural production. We've, we, farmers have specialized in growing just a few crops or livestock. We kind of parted those out from each other in That's that, right. uh, around then. And that allowed, there was an efficiency in terms of uh, farmers got very good at growing particular things. So good, in fact, that the commodity price that they get for these now commoditized crops that feed the processed food industry dropped through the floor. Yeah. At the same time, what's happened to all the agrochemical inputs that farmers need to purchase to participate in, in modern, uh, modern conventional farming? Those went through the roof. Yeah. So the people on either end buying and selling the, the commoditized crops or providing the inputs to farmers are doing just fine. It's the farmers that are squeezed in the middle. Yes, that's absolutely their, right. Their costs have gone up and their, their ability to control their income has gone down. So the farmers that I went and visited who had adopted these conservation agriculture techniques were really excited about the potential for um, a soil health revolution in terms of thinking about how they farm because it allowed them to maintain their yields while greatly reducing their input costs. So the one thing that they can manage is how much of the diesel and the fertilizer and the pesticides they are buying and using on their farm. And if they can figure out different techniques, different methods, different ways of doing things that reduce their need for those inputs but maintain their yields, then that gives them a better bottom line and they're more profitable. Absolutely. Yeah, that and makes... that's where I, Go ahead. that's where I think there's a major potential to really revolutionize agriculture because more and more farmers are realizing that 
this is the way to make their farm more profitable. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Talk a little bit about how crop insurance and subsidies support the um, conventional agriculture, though, because that's that's a place where, you know, dealing with what you're talking about, those crop insurances, those subsidies don't really apply to guys who are going to adopt a sort of like multi-crop rotation over the years and stop using, you know, you know what I mean? It's conventional farming is not, I mean... Um, Crop subsidies and insurance aren't necessarily going to help the guys who move on from conventional farming. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, it was even uh, up until just very recently, I believe the last farm bill, that if you were um, planting cover crops, you were not eligible for, for crop insurance, which is a pretty major no disincentive for adopting that practice. I did not know so that. I think, I think views on crop insurance in the policy world are starting to shift and change, but we still have a system of... Um, our system of agricultural subsidies is really oriented towards monocultural commodity crop production rather than building soil health. And so we've got a system that encourages continued reliance on tillage on the plow and on growing you know, one or just a few crops. Um, and what we really need to do is restructure those kinds of systems so that we would reward farmers for adopting the soil health building practices that would improve the fertility of their land even as they continue to intensively farm it. Um, I, I, for the life of me, do not understand why we've chosen in this country to structure our agricultural subsidies in ways that reduce the fertility of the soil over the long run. Well, I can think of a few reasons. It's called the agro-petrochemical industry complex. I mean, you know, let's remember who's uh, who's really calling the shots out here. Um, it's it's yeah, that, not, that would be the only logical explanation. It really is. I mean, I, really. Except that also these, I mean, these very same companies, and I wanted to talk to you a little bit about this, was, you know, these very same companies are the companies that are funding ag schools, uh, you know, um, state research agencies and so forth, that are encouraging these uh, conventional um, methods rather than encouraging uh, necessarily um, more progressive methods, such as you suggest. So, uh, you know, until those, until the science itself and, and education is no longer um, reliant upon money from big agrochemical companies, I think it's going to be an uphill battle, don't you? Well, that's a huge problem. Uh, you know, one of the things that I really recognized in the book was how adopting this the suite of a system of practices of, of no-till mm-hmm. cover crops and a diverse rotation is really essential for capturing the full benefit of those practices on building soil health. But what have scientists done, sort of tended to do quite independently of where their funding might come from, and I'll get to that in a moment, but we tend to break things into single pieces so we can control all the other variables. How does that work when you have a system of interconnected and interacting parts, particularly in how it relates to the life in the soil, which we're just opening our window of understanding into into realizing the way that bacterial and fungal life in the soil supports the health of crops, as Ann and I talked about in The Hidden Half of Nature. So science has this problem of tending to um, uh, reduce things to single dimensions, where in this case, I think we need a lot of research on new agronomic systems that involve soil health as a shift in philosophy. Because if you look at the what drives the philosophy of modern farming, sort of what underpins it, it's intensive tillage, monocultures, um, and uh, and essentially bare ground between um, between plowings. That's the exact opposite of soil building practices. Absolutely. Um, 
Yeah. And so we need, we need to fundamentally flip our philosophy of farming and test new, new ideas of systems levels and how they map into, onto different regions at, sort of a, at full farm scale, not on individual effects on individual plots. Right. And in terms of the source of funding, there's a real conundrum there in the sense that um, it's very easy to think about who might be willing or interested in funding research on a new product that might be sold to farmers as something that, that may help them farm. It's harder to identify sources of, of funding to support research on changes in practices that are not monetizable, mm-hmm. things you can just teach people to do differently that would be in their best interest but not necessarily the best interest of the people providing the funding. That's a huge problem. I, I, I consider that, well, not insurmountable, but certainly a very significant issue um, that I think is going to have to be addressed at a government level. And that, of course, is not something that the Republican administration would be at all interested in. Um, one of the things I wondered about, because I, I read a lot of the trades, and, and you know, your book uh, describes numerous farmers who uh, are readily adopting uh, the soil conservation um, farming techniques that you described with color, cover crops and no-till and rotations. And I remember reading a study, um, a synopsis of a study that took place at the University of Iowa, and um, the the scientist or the professor who was um, who had run this study was saying, well, if you do a three-crop rotation instead of a two-crop rotation, you start building, rebuilding your soil. This was like three or four years ago. And the response on the on the the um, the trade paper, you know, people, farmers were writing in and saying they were not into this. They were like, who are you telling me how to do this? You're some egghead in a university. I mean, you know, you're another egghead in a university. So how are you going to... How do you get to tell these guys, like, and you know what I mean? How do you convince people who you know are very risk averse? Let's face it, who oh, may yeah. may actually see some drop in yield if they take because it probably takes a couple years, right, to build up soil and to do to make your yields you know increase to the point where you see a comparable amount of income using uh, um, conservation methods versus conventional methods like how do you get these guys to go along on board with this especially the big yeah, ones that that's a that's a really good question and what I saw uh, from the farmers I visited is that you know it could take a several years two to three uh, years to start seeing results that uh, that got you back to the uh, net profitability. So there's, mm-hmm. a, there's a downside, there's a cost right. for, for adopting these, these uh, practices. But the, um, you know, the approach that I took, um, you know, because I'm an academic geologist, um, <laughs> I took the approach of going to visit farmers who were already doing it, who had proven it can right. work, <laughs> right. and to ask them, what did you do? You know, tell me your story. Uh, why did you start doing this? How did you sort of start to adopt no-till? And then why did you bring in cover crops? Why did you diversify your rotation? And I visited people across North America, from North and South Dakota over to Pennsylvania and up to Saskatchewan, and visited people in Costa Rica and in Ghana in Africa. Yeah, I thought the African and, stuff was very interesting. Let's talk about that in a minute. Sorry. Yeah, and I tried to basically look at um, you know, what are the common elements that underpin these successful examples, and how do you adapt these general principles of, of minimal disturbance covering up the ground and diversifying your crops to build profitable farming in the, all these different, different settings. So mm-hmm. what I tried to do is take the tact of, you know, I'm not going to, be, to pretend that a geologist is the right person to redefine the way we farm. 
I'm going to go out and talk to the farmers who are already leading the soil health revolution and find out what they're doing. What sort of look under the hood of their system and then ask the question of, does the scientific literature back up what they're showing actually works in practice? And I was so impressed with what I learned on that trip that I turned it into a book. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I want to talk a little bit about um, sort of the green revolution, uh, you know, entities like the World Bank and the UN who are exporting this um, American conventional farming. And, um, you know, it's it's clearly not going to be successful in a place that is water challenged, for example, that doesn't have access to irrigation. Um, so describe a little bit about what you found there in terms of like what was being exported from the United States and then what farmers themselves were actually finding was going to be more effective for them. Yeah, you know, if you look at the, the, a lot of the strategies that have been proposed for um, how to feed the billion more people that are expected to come into Africa over the next several generations, mm-hmm. um, it's usually framed in terms of bringing the green revolution there in terms of fertilizer-intensive crops. Right. Um, patented seeds. Um, and yet, if you go actually visit subsistence farmers in a place like Ghana, uh, where I went, the first thing you realize is that they do not have the capital to buy those products. Ah. They're not buying fertilizer. They're right. barely using any herbicide because they don't have the money to purchase it on their farms. So the, the gentleman that I visited, Kofi Boa, who had, uh, runs the no-till center in Kumasi, Ghana, had been teaching them ways to... Um, uh, minimize their disturbance, use cover crops and plant multiple crops in the same field to grow uh, diversities in their fields. And he'd managed to double their crop yields over the wow. course of a generation mm-hmm. and by building, rebuilding the fertility of their native soil. And that's a way to get people in that kind of a situation sort of started on the first few steps on the road to sustainable development. It's, you're not going to feed subsistence farmers by selling them expensive patented things. Right, right. And also, I'm thinking about land grabbing, too, where, well, anyway, that's another conversation, David. We're not going to go there. (laughs) (laughs) That's all there. Um, At one point, you suggest that organic-ish farming could change the world. But in what way and why wouldn't full-on organic be better? Like, why is organic-ish okay? Um, Like, or even better? Basically, what I found was that... um, uh, I didn't argue that organic-ish was better than organic, but what I did, and I actually looked at how these, process, these um, uh, practices could be used on to improve organic farms, and visiting the Rodale Institute in Pennsylvania, for example. Mm-hmm. But what I also found was that many of the farmers who had adopted this full suite of practices had so reduced their agrochemical use that I considered them organic-ish, sort of organic in all but detail. They were using, right. you know, maybe 10% of the herbicide they used to use. They were using a lot less diesel, and some of them weren't using any fertilizers. Some were using like 12% of what they used to do. Um, and that has, if we could convert now conventional farming into that style of farming, this organic-ish farming, yeah. then the difference between full-on organic and organic-ish will be really fairly small. Um, and that would change the world. If we could actually convert a conventional agriculture to that style, it, it truly would change the world. And the arguments over organic versus organic-ish could then proceed <laughs> um, but, <laughs> but against this backdrop of a greatly changed world. 
animal. Yeah. One of the things we haven't talked about in terms of the soil conservation methods that you um, that you espouse is the water retention. Talk a little bit about that, because um, that's something that I'm always acutely aware of, no matter what part of the country we're talking about, is the fact that we're, you know, we're going to run out yeah. of water. And these this conservation methods that you describe really have an impact on water use. Can you describe that? Yeah, sure. And, I, and I'm sort of running up against my time uh, as well. I so hear I'll, you. I'll, I'll have to wrap we'll up. We'll wrap it up the, after um, that, yeah. There's a, there's a few major advantages, one of which if you restore fertility to the soil, it can hold more water and more of your rainfall will infiltrate into the soil and not run off over the ground surface. Mm-hmm. That's huge for farmers who are in uh, water-challenged regions, uh, like the Dakotas, for example. Right. Um, so you can, in, you can decrease your farm costs. Uh, you can um, increase farm profits. Um, uh, you can get better water use um, and retention on site. This the style of conservation agriculture farming is one of the sort of really is actually better for the farmers who who see it through and adopt it, and it's better for the environment. It, it's a, a a win-win that I think we really should all be looking at as a very major innovation for how to revolutionize for the next agricultural revolution. Absolutely. So we'll wrap it up there. Can you tell people where to learn more about your book, which is, again, it's called um, Growing a Revolution, Bringing Our Soil Back to Life. You guys have a website? Yes. Um, uh, our website is dig2grow. That's dig, the number two, grow.com. And you can find information on, our, on both Anne and my books uh, at that website. And if uh, people are into Twitter. You can follow us. Our um, um, uh, um, ID is at Dig2Grow. Again, the number two in the middle. Mm-hmm. And we're also on Facebook at Dig2GrowBooks. Um, and we're happy to connect with, with readers. And, uh, of course, the books can be found uh, you know, anywhere the books are sold, whether you like you know, giant uh, online retailers or your local bookstore. Right. Um, the book is out, and obviously encourage people to, to check it out and, and see what they think. I do. I, th- I thought it was great. Congratulations on a great book. And thanks so much for joining me today. I hope you'll come back. Thank you. I'd be happy to. Okay, that's great. Thanks for my sponsor, and thanks to my engineer, and we'll see you next week uh, for What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights. Until then, have a good one. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.